Time for our regular segment, Legally Speaking, with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, uh, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting things on the agenda today. We've uh, had a lot of discussions in the past about wills and estates. Another interesting example off the top. Indeed. This one's got a good name as well. It involves the the presumption of destruction. <laughs> There's a, a good legal concept for you. And the, the presumption of destruction uh, actually comes from a uh, case dating all the way back to 1836. And it's still good law in British Columbia. Uh, and here's how it was recently applied. A very interesting fact pattern. The case involves a uh, a lady who was 81 years of age. Uh, she lived alone. Uh, she had a uh, home on Quadra Island. Um, she did not have any children. She did not have any surviving siblings. And she had been divorced in the 1980s. Okay, that's the fact pattern. Okay. Um, and uh, she sadly, she passed away. Uh, and uh, the issue became, what about her estate? Um, and the reason that was uh, an interesting and controversial issue um, is that uh, family members were aware that she had nieces and nephews, and they were aware that she had uh, created a will um, all the way back in 2001. And in that will, she left all of her estate to one of her nieces. Um, and so naturally, that uh, created an issue about, okay, where's the will, and what does it say, and what should be done? Um, and uh, when uh, she passed away, uh, some of the extended family members uh, went uh, to her home uh, on Quadra Island uh, to look to see if they could find the will. Uh, one of the sad notes in here, it's not really uh, uh, detailed in this case, was that they found that uh, her dog and two cats had been left alone in the house since she was hospitalized several weeks earlier. So mm. hopefully somebody was taking care of them. Yeah. Um, it, so the family members, they looked around the house, they looked to see if they could find a will, and they couldn't find any uh, Couldn't find any will. They did find other things. They found bills and insurance forms. Uh, they found uh, a prepaid funeral service arrangement, which was interesting. They went through a filing cabinet, but they couldn't find a will. Uh, so the next step, and people should know about this too, we have in British Columbia a wills registry. And the wills registry allows either a lawyer or notary that prepares a will, or indeed, and this is quite interesting, anyone who's uh, both or either 16 years of age and with mental capacity, or any age and in the Canadian forces on active duty, um, that's troublesome if we have 15-year-olds or younger in active duty on the, for the Canadian Forces, but that's provided for. Yeah. Um, and so the uh, wills registry would allow uh, anyone in either of those categories to uh, file notice of the fact that there is a will. They don't actually like hold the will, but they would have information like the date of birth, when the will was entered into, and where the will is, right? Which is, that's pretty important, right? So it might often be like, hey, it's uh, at my lawyer's office, or it's in my filing cabinet, or wherever it might be. And indeed, when they looked in the wills registry, the, there was a notice filed about the will being kept in a Royal Bank safety deposit box up in Campbell River on Shoppers Row. Hmm. And so they went to look. That safety deposit box didn't exist. Interesting turn of events. Huh. So it just, but they were able to... It never it existed there. or it didn't exist? I'm curious. It just didn't exist. Okay. So, <laughs> that's interesting. I, I've actually had a sort of a experience dealing with one of these things where 
a safety deposit box was moved yeah. uh, from one bank to another when a bank branch uh, moved. But in wow. any case, here, the evidence was it didn't exist. Hmm. So they didn't, but they were able to track down the notary who had prepared the will. And indeed, the notary had a copy of the will. He kept it, an unsigned copy, but a copy nonetheless. Interesting. Now, here, here's, where the, here's where that ties in with the presumption of destruction. The notary was able to say, I gave the original signed will, which left everything to the one niece, to the person who made it, the woman who made the will. She walked out with it. That's hmm. important. Okay. Okay. Further efforts were made to look for the will. They couldn't find it. A bunch of the family members went back to Quadra Island. Interestingly, they started going through books and magazines. Uh, and this was an odd piece of evidence. They, uh, some of, they concluded that they needed to burn some of the books and magazines because there wasn't garbage or recycling on the island. It was sort of a perhaps suspicious state of affairs, but the evidence was that they had looked through the things, like shaken them or flipped through them before burning them. So it was possible that the will was shoved into a book or a magazine. They got inadvertently burned. And indeed, one book in the house did have some legal documents in it. So there was a specter of that. Hmm. But here's what that, doc, here's what that presumption of destruction really means. If you have a circumstance where there's evidence that the person who made the will had the will, that's important, like they physically had possession of it, and then it can't be located, uh, you can draw the, the presumption would say that they would presume the person destroyed the will so that it wouldn't be effective, right? Hmm. And that's an interesting thing just to think about that. Well, I guess the, the as the judge pointed out, that principle, which leads all the way back to 1836, or that presumption, it sort of ties in with, and this is one of the beautiful things about the law, is that it generally sort of accords with common sense. And here, that presumption uh, is premised on, as the judge pointed out, the common sense presumption that if somebody has a will, they generally want it to be effective, like they want their wishes to be carried out, right? Hmm. So you generally, if you have a will, don't make a will and then go and, like, hide it somewhere, <laughs> because that's not going to be very effective, right? If people can't find the thing, they can't do what you want. <laughs> My right? secret and will, yeah. Yeah, I secretly made the will, and I squirreled it away in the back of a Reader's Digest from 1987 and hidden it amongst many others, right? That's not going to work too well. And so there's this uh, uh, doctrine that if there's evidence the person had the thing, and that's important because if they didn't have it, that doesn't really make sense, right? Like if the evidence was from the um, notary, say, for example, well, I had the thing. She asked me to keep it in my filing cabinet in the law firm, uh, but unfortunately I had a fire and it was destroyed, for example, right? Then it wouldn't make sense to conclude that the person – presumably wanted to destroy it. That's just, well, some intervening if a you know, fire occurred, and that, that's where that went. In which case, a judge could uh, enforce that unsigned copy, right? If the, uh, the only indication was that that's what the person's wishes were, right? There are provisions to allow that. Hmm. But because she had it, and that was clear, and they, they couldn't find it, and then the judge looked at other things. Like, for example, the judge can look at things like, has the person said things over that time period about their wishes? Like if somebody said, literally, I ripped that thing up, I realized I made a huge mistake, obviously, that's going to be pretty compelling evidence, right? Yeah. Or if somebody said, no, I've changed my mind, or 
something happened, but there was nothing like that. Unfortunately, this uh, lady who passed away didn't have much interaction with her extended family. And then there's another interesting thing which can be considered by a judge, which would be that if the terms of a will are uh, described as sort of unreasonable, uh, then there could be there might be a suggestion that let's say somebody I don't know uh, did some crazy thing. I'm leaving all of my money to somebody or other. It made no particular sense. You, you might say, well, hold on, maybe that would be a suggestion that the person could have you know sort of calmed down and thought better about it and changed their mind, but. That really wasn't clear here. It wasn't clear why she would have left it all to the one niece and not the other extended family members. They didn't seem to have any particular special connection. Other than, this is an interesting point, the lady who passed away, her registered retirement income fund, she did name that niece as the only beneficiary of that and didn't change that. So that was one of the things that they pointed out, saying, well, hey, maybe this is a suggestion that that's indeed what she still wanted. Because if she really changed her mind about giving everything to the niece and destroyed the will, wouldn't she have changed that too? Not a bad argument. But the judge said, well, no, that's not necessarily so. A person can say, well, yes, I still want this to go to this person, but I've changed my mind about everything else, and so I ripped that thing up. And so at the end of the day, given that there was no statements, nothing really to you know, determine that the person had changed their mind or maintained the same position or that the relationship had changed. There's just nothing other than we know she made the will. She was the last one with the will, according to the only, only evidence they had was from the uh, notary that prepared it, gave it to her, and it was gone. Nobody could locate it, and there wasn't uh, any evidence to the contrary that it burned down or that it was in the pile of magazines or anything else. Uh, the result of that is that uh, that doctrine or that presumption of destruction carried the day. Uh, and the judge pointed out, you know, it's on a stand, it's on a balance of probabilities, like any other civil case, right? And the burden would be on uh, the person who's trying to overcome uh, that presumption of destruction to lead some evidence, uh, which would satisfy the judge on a balance of probabilities that the uh, testator hadn't uh, decided to destroy the will because they no longer wanted it to have effect. And, uh, you know, that just reflects the fact that generally, if you have a will, you're going to probably put it somewhere where it's going to be found rather than hiding it away. Uh, And that's where that comes from. And that's the presumption of destruction. And the net result here is that all of the extended relatives will wind up sharing in the proceeds uh, or sharing in the uh, uh, assets uh, in accordance uh, with what happens when somebody dies uh, without a will. Uh, which is also set out uh, in terms of how those are to be divided up. So the one niece uh, doesn't get it all. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. We'll take a quick break. We're back right after this. All right, back on the air with Legally Speaking here at CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan and Mulligan Defense Lawyers. After that latest uh, matter involving estates, I see the term WestJet here. What's going on? (laughs) I I must say, uh, indeed, uh, everyone's favorite punching bag uh, airlines. (laughs) Uh, so <laughs> they're so loved, all of them. Yeah, they're beloved, aren't they? Uh, the uh, the next uh, so the next case involves a uh, uh, proposed class action against both Air Canada and WestJet, and WestJet's attempt to stop uh, the uh, claim against them, arguing that it has no chance of success. And as we've talked about before, much of the fighting over class actions occurs before the thing actually becomes a class action, right, trying to stop the thing from being certified as a class action or arguing that the whole thing is doomed, trying to get it uh, struck out. 
And so this was an application by WestJet arguing that all of this was doomed and had no hope of success, and so it ought to be stopped right now. Um, Air Canada, for its part, didn't bother that it, joining in that application. They were kind of along for the ride. And so here's the claim, which is the interesting part of it. So the uh, this is a BC case. Uh, the uh, plaintiffs are individuals with varying forms of disabilities, including, according to the judge, severe cases of obesity, such that they cannot lower the armrest of an economy aircraft seat. Uh, those who require a hair aid or are safe self-reliant, so they need somebody else on the plane to help them, uh, or people who uh, require a service animal that's so large that it can't fit at their feet. And the issue is. Can they be charged extra for the second seat, basically, right? Um, uh, the uh, argument in the class action is that uh, people shouldn't have to have, who have those disabilities shouldn't have to pay for the second seat if they can't get the armrest down, uh, or they uh, shouldn't have to pay for a second seat for the person who's their aide accompanying them, or for the second seat to have the uh, floor space for the service animal. Um, and... The landscape in that regard is complicated in Canada because you've got, uh, first of all, some federal jurisdiction over those things, airlines, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's been a previous decision in terms of uh, disability rights federally that back in 2008 resulted in changes to how WestJet handled domestic requests for those things, such that it uh, the uh, human rights uh, decision concluded that it was uh, unreasonable to uh, not to for the airline not to provide the second seat if somebody couldn't get the armrest down, uh, or for the care aid, or for the dog space, and so on. Domestic flights, they're not apparently charging for those things, um, and the issue then becomes: well, what about international flights? And I guess that was viewed differently from the uh, human rights assessment because of the cost that would. Uh, attached to that uh, for the airline having to uh, provide a free seat for the uh, attendant to help the person or for the dog or for the second seat uh, if the person couldn't physically fit in one seat. Um, and so that's the basis upon which there's this uh, the claim being made. Um, and it's a, uh, uh, I must say, the, the concern from the airline, I mean, on one hand, the description of when, according to the term, somebody might, for example, have require an aid would be things like if the person has impairments to both their hearing and vision, such that they would be unable to communicate uh, with airline staff, uh, or uh, a mobility impairment such that they would be unable to get on their oxygen mask. I must say that particular one has a little bit more resonance with the uh, door plug of that Boeing falling out <laughs> not that long ago. Uh, and so, we, uh, you know, the, at the end of the day, there's going to be an issue here about the uh, balancing of those uh, rights and responsibilities. Who should bear that cost? Yeah. Uh, right. And is it a legal requirement uh, that somebody with a, a, a disability be afforded the second seat uh, for free, or whether they should be required to pay for it? Um, and it raises a number of interesting issues, including constitutional issues, who's got responsibility for it, uh, and I suppose at the end of the day, policy issues about, uh, you know, exactly those questions. Whose responsibility is it to pay for those things? Is it the airline? Uh, does everyone have to be treated the same? Or if you require more space for whatever reason it might be, does that mean you should pay for the additional space? Um, at the end of the day, the WestJet claimed that this was all doomed, 
despite various creative arguments, including uh, retort or uh, resorting to constitutional arguments about things like paramountcy and interjurisdictional immunity and various other things, the uh, judge concluded that all those are interesting points, right? It all will be litigated and sorted out at the end of the day. But it wasn't plain and obvious that this claim against WestJet was going to fail. And so the result of that is that WestJet was unsuccessful in getting that uh, the claim struck out at this stage, and the case will now move on uh, to the next stage of seeking certification as a class action. And so we will need to wait and see what the uh, eventual outcome is in terms of who's got to pay for the extra seat on both WestJet and, uh, and on Air Canada. And our final matter, what is character evidence and why might it be important or allowed or rather disallowed? Yeah, that's really interesting. And this comes out of a case that some people might have heard of recently. It's a case out of Campbell River. Huh? And it's a case that dated back to uh, when COVID was a new and uh, more pressing matter uh, and a uh, incident in a Savon Foods up in Campbell River. Uh, and the accused in that case uh, was uh, convicted uh, on the basis of uh, uh, coughing, uh, intentionally coughing in the direction of some employees huh. uh, at Save On Foods. There was also an incident with uh, whether she had intentionally pushed a shopping cart into one of them when they were dealing with her. That was the underlying uh, issue. And, and here's how the character evidence came up. Uh, the uh, accused in that case, she started without a lawyer. She had a lawyer helping her for a little bit but then for reasons unknown, decided to fire her lawyer and try to carry on the case on her own. Not generally a good idea, but that's what she did. She then advised the trial judge that she intended to call character evidence when it was her opportunity. Crown counsel stood up and said that character evidence would be irrelevant. And the judge ruled uh, that uh, character evidence uh, could be helpful in sentencing, but character evidence was not admissible in the trial, trial part of the case, uh, whether by, on behalf of the Crown or the accused. Now, the result of that, the woman didn't call any evidence, and she was convicted. The trouble with that is, as a matter of law, both Crown counsel and the judge were just 100% wrong. Hmm. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. Indeed, character evidence can be relevant on sentencing. Like, if somebody is convicted, all kinds of things can be relevant for a judge to determine what sentence should be imposed, right? Does the person have some terribly long record of dastardly conduct? Maybe a greater sentence, right? Does the person have never had any trouble in their life before and they're 65 years old? And Okay, well, that would result in probably a different outcome, right? So clearly relevant there. But it's also relevant in the trial. And now, it, when the way it works is this. During a criminal case, Crown counsel cannot lead evidence of bad character uh, on their own uh, to try to suggest to the judge that this is just some dastardly character and more likely to be guilty. Hmm. Okay, That's not allowed. Hmm. right? We don't want to just kind of round up the usual suspects and convict people on the basis that they're a dastardly person. Criminal cases are about the allegation, not are you a bad person or a good person, right? But an accused person can choose to lead evidence of good character in their case at the trial to suggest that either it's less likely they committed the offense or that they're more worthy of belief. And the history of that goes back a very long time. We used to have trials where a very, very long time ago, the jury was comprised of people who like from the community who like know the person, right? And know about all the circumstances. They could sort of, oh, you know, that's Bob. Is he likely to have done that? Well, he's 
you know, always flying off the handle, probably just the kind of thing Bob would have done. We've gotten past that. Uh, but character evidence properly led is evidence of the person's reputation in the community. Hmm. And so the way that would work is that if the defense wanted to lead character evidence, you wouldn't just be calling somebody as a witness to say, I think Mary is a great person and never would have done anything like this. That's just your opinion, right? But the way it would be done is that the potential witness would be expected to go and talk to other people in the community who are familiar with the accused person to find out their reputation. For example, does this person have a reputation for violence? Is this the sort of person who is likely to have pushed a shopping cart intentionally into a Save on Foods employee? Is this the sort of person who's likely to have tried to cough on somebody intentionally to spread COVID, right? Yeah. Uh, and that character witness, after they've gathered information about the person's reputation in the community, is absolutely entitled to come and give evidence in the case for the accused to tell the judge or jury about exactly that. They'd be able to show up and say, this is Mary. I've spoken to 10 people who know her in the community. They all agree she is somebody who is not violent. They've never seen her get into a circumstance where she's responded by using violence in a difficult circumstance. It's unlikely, according to her reputation, that she would have done such a thing. And moreover, she has a reputation for honesty. So if she testifies that she didn't do it, you ought to believe her. Because I've spoken to all sorts of people who are familiar with her for 40 years. They all say they've never heard her lie about anything, and she's a very honest person. That evidence is absolutely admissible. Uh, and so it would appear that both Crown, who is not the Crown on the appeal, but Crown on the original trial, and the judge just didn't know that that is the law. And so when the judge told her, you can't do that, it's irrelevant, <laughs> after the Crown said exactly the same thing, it was just dead wrong. And so when the case got to the appeal, which is what the decision that just came out this month, just a few days ago, the Crown on the appeal, different Crown from the one at trial, acknowledged exactly that. Judge and Crown were totally mistaken. And in fairness to the woman, she didn't have a lawyer at that point to tell her, that's just wrong, go get the case law, show it to the judge, right? She didn't know. And so the Crown Council tried to invoke what's called a curative provision uh, proviso on an appeal. And the idea there is that um, yeah, it's uh, 686.1b3 uh, of the criminal code. And the argument the Crown made on the appeal is that this was just a harmless error. It didn't make any difference. Uh, the judge on the appeal did not agree because there are two kinds of harmless mistake that might not impact the fairness of a conviction. The first category would be if a mistake was really minor, right? Didn't really matter. That wasn't the case here. This is pretty significant. The second argument, or the second kind of mistake that might not result in a appeal being allowed is if the error made no difference, even if it was a big error. Hmm. Like if the case was overwhelming against the person, uh, it would have made it no difference. Yeah. But the judge again found that's not the case here. And so the curative proviso did not apply. It was a major mistake. It could have impact on the trial. And then the final decision for the judge on the appeal is, do you order a new trial or do you acquit the person? Because they have either choice. Usually, the, when there's a big mistake, it would be go have a new trial and try again. But there is discretion where, for example, a person has served all of their sentence or a significant part of their sentence for the judge to say, that just wouldn't be fair. We're not going to have to do this over again. The trial was wrong. The person served their sentence. There's no, why would we do this again? Uh, and here, the judge found the person hadn't served all of her sentence. She'd only served, I think, a third of her probation order. 
But the judge said, look, in all these circumstances, given that she served that much of her probation and given the serious mistake that was made at the trial, it wouldn't be fair to order another one. And so the judge acquitted her. And that's the significance of character evidence and how it's still completely admissible uh, in a uh, in a trial today. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, that's all the time we have for now. Pleasure as always. Until next week. Thanks so much. Always enjoy it. All right. Quick break. News is next.